Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Drawing Near to the Throne of Grace on deepening your prayer life. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. Our topic is prayer, and our title is Drawing Near to the Throne of Grace. And um, got a little picture of a throne here. Throne of, I wasn't sure what a throne of grace looked like, but uh, um, since no man has seen God at any time, then we'll just pretend that the invisible God is there. On the throne, well, I grew up in the Episcopalian church, and as a child, I always knew we were in the right church because we had a big chair up there for God. I thought that's what it was for until one day the bishop came and sat in it. I was, I was horrified. I thought, he just does not, he's going to be in a lot of trouble sitting in God's chair. And in fact, it looked a lot like this. But as we talk about prayer, we really want to think about it in these terms. The whole concept of intimacy with God. I think so many times, maybe coming out of the, the post-war period of time, World War II and all of that, there was such an emphasis on discipline and duty. I don't think you can fight a war without a tremendous emphasis on that. But as people tried, then, then uh, also applied that to their Christian life and devotions and prayer and evangelism, I think people find over 10, 20, or 30 years that if you try to run your life primarily on duty and discipline, it begins to get creaky after a while. It's that like there's not quite enough gas to get you the whole way if you try to do things only out of duty and discipline. That doesn't mean those are bad, and that's a good way to start off. And this idea of drawing near to God and the intimacy with God is something we'll, we'll want to be looking at over the next eight weeks. And also the concept of grace, the throne of grace. Do you ever picture what is on God's face as you draw near? Because how a person is going to receive you greatly affects how eager you are to go. There have been times when you needed to make a visit and you were either looking forward to that visit or not looking forward to that visit because you could already picture the look on that person's face when they found out you were the one visiting them. And if they had a face like this, like you just made their whole week and they start crying and running out to you, you want to go visit that person. And if it's a different kind of a, a, a look, a stern look uh, where they go and get out, get out their list of all their grievances against you, and you can tell they're angry with you, then you're not very eager to make that visit. And I think a lot of times uh, the same kind of things affect us in our prayer life. Our problem isn't primarily one of duty and discipline. It lies in other things, and we want to look at that. Now tonight, uh, I want to use a figure. The Bible uses many figures, examples, parallels. Jesus says, I'm the door, and he didn't mean he all of a sudden was made out of wood or something like that, like Pinocchio. It was just a figure. There were certain aspects of, of saying, of comparing himself to a door that could communicate spiritual truth. And so I'm going to use a figure, a more modern day figure that some of you are familiar with, uh, a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, how many have heard of it? Let's start there. Okay, we've at least heard of it. How many have seen the movie or, or read the book? Okay, we've got a reasonable amount. But this book was written by an Oxford professor, I think in the well, about 50 years ago, and it's a story that, that in a figurative type way tries to present different spiritual truths. And in the very first book, which is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, can anybody guess who the lion represents? Jesus, Jesus the Lion of Judah. The witch r represented Satan and the, uh, and the spiritual warfare aspect of, the, of our lives. And in this, in this workshop, I'm going to say that the wardrobe is our prayer closet, is the dimension of prayer in our lives. And the reason I, I picked this was because as I was praying about this workshop and, and thinking about the last 30 years as I've uh, learned a little bit more about prayer, I realized that I used to think of prayer as kind of going into a small place and doing your sentence, doing your time, finishing it where you could check it off and not feel so guilty about it. And um, 
but, but thinking about it kind of as a small enclosed place. And uh, over the years, I've realized, actually, it's sort of like the, in the story in this, when the children hide in this wardrobe, they realize that there's, they, they, go, they can go further and further back. And the further back they go, the more they realize there's a whole world back there. And that's what I've discovered also in terms of prayer. There's a whole lot more to it than I ever thought there was. And uh, so anyway, we want to kind of follow this figure through just as a, as a way of illustrating it in a different, maybe a way differently than you're used to. <coughs> now this week, we want to focus on what's the foundation of prayer. What's the foundation of prayer? And I want you to look in your Bibles to 1 John 5, 11 through 13. I want to congratulate you for coming at all. Prayer and evangelism are probably the two biggest areas of frustration for your basic uh, Christian who's basically doing okay. But uh, if you ever want to get them feeling guilty, in, in these two areas you could probably do it pretty quickly because you never feel like, I mean, when are you going to have prayed enough? Uh, when are you going to have shared your faith enough? I mean, there's still a whole world out there that hasn't heard of Christ. And what did you do today? You know I mean? You could just it so easily slip into thinking, oh, I, I'm a failure. And so when it's a, a situation of, of, of easily feeling like a failure, uh, and it's been over a long period of time, uh, my tendency is just to kind of want to avoid the subject, you know. Uh, uh, I feel bad enough already, don't, don't bring up yet another area that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I want to talk today about uh, uh, four things that are foundational for our prayer life. Now this is not necessarily going to tell us how to pray yet. We've got eight, eight weeks, if you all hang in there where we're going to talk about a lot of things about this adventure of drawing near to the throne of grace. But I've found that there, there are a number of things, I'm sure there are more things, but I, I've identified four today that I think are a foundation, that if something's missing in this foundation, I mean, a lot, most of you are homeowners, and one of the things you, you live in fear of in buying a house is that there's going to be some problem with the foundation that you don't find out before you buy it. And then you get one of those awful cracks that goes up, you know, through the, through the whole house. And in the same way, there are several foundational items that greatly affect our ability to pray. Far beyond knowing any techniques or any ideas on prayer, none of, none of the superstructure is going to solve a problem in the foundation. The foundational problems have to be solved down there at the ground level. The first foundational part of our foundation, the first two actually, have to do with our relation to the Lion, to the Lion of Judah, to the Lord. Since prayer is talking to God, to the degree that relationship is strong, it's going to be easier to talk to Him. And the very first thing I want to mention today, I've, the assurance of salvation. If tonight were your very last night on earth, if you were to die and meet God tonight, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? Not 98% sure, not 99% sure. Are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? 1 John 5, 11 through 13, let's read that. And the testimony is this, or the record is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that tonight? Now, I always used to think you weren't supposed to know it. I, you know, you grow up going to school, right? And uh, nobody, nobody normally halfway through the term says, I know I'm going to make an A. It's just not a humble thing to say. And, and how do you know anyway? And so normally you have to wait until all your grades are in, you take your final exam, and then you find out in all humility what grade you made. Well, when I first uh, started attending a Presbyterian church in Alabama and I'm going to this youth group, one Sunday night, the minister, can you imagine a Presbyterian minister doing this? I've never had the guts to do it in a Presbyterian church ever since, but he said, everybody in here is going to heaven, raise your hand. Well, I thought it was a trick, you know. I wasn't going to raise my hand. And so... All my friends raised their hands. I thought, there must be something they haven't told me. So I, I poked one of them, because I'd already asked Christ to come into my life. I, I, I knew that Christianity had something to do with knowing God. That was the extent of my understanding of the thing. And to me, that was good enough. That was really great to have contact with God. So I poked one of them. I said, how come you raised your hand? 
He says, well, if you've put your faith in Christ, you can know you're going to heaven. I said, you're kidding. Is that so? <laughs> hey, this is great, you know. <laughs> so it was at that point I realized that I had always suffered from a theological delusion that there was a giant beam balance in heaven and that at the end of time God would take my good and my bad and weigh it out and if my good weighed more than my bad then I'd go to heaven. But the Bible says that by grace we're saved through faith and that's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not as a result of works lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's the gift of God not as a result of works. Now, why would assurance of salvation be so important? I just heard the other day on a talk by R.C. Sproul that he said that a 16th century theologian in the Council of Trent, Catholic theologian, said this whole idea of justification by faith is the worst heresy that's ever come out in the Christian church. And they thought that if you taught that people could know they're saved by, through faith in Christ alone, that then they'd go out and live like the devil. But in fact, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's explained all the way through the New Testament. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And because we can't, and because God does it, we can be sure, because it no longer depends on us. Let's look at these verses again. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us, notice the past tense, God has given us already eternal life. And this life is in a place, in, in a person. It's in His Son. And then he says this very simply. He who has the Son maybe has the life. No, now let's try it again. He who has the Son could be, if he's born in the right family, goes to the right church, has the life. No. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God still might have a shot at it. No, no. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's just like as simple as this switch here. It's either on or it's off. It's not, it's not half on in the middle. I'm not on my way to salvation. It's either off or it's on. He who has the Son has the life. Let me ask you again. Do you have the Son? Now, I'm not, I can't get into this anymore, but I want to at least open the subject enough that tries to go into it in more detail. The evidences that should be in your life if Christ really is, has that place in your heart. And uh, most people are about maybe 95% sure, you know. So this is more for that last 5%. I also want to mention that it's very dangerous to be falsely assured. There are people, the Bible says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and we did all these wonderful things in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So this is something very important just to go over the basics again, make sure where do I stand with the Lord, that assurance of salvation. Because how are we going to approach Him as His children if we're not sure we are one? There are people that struggle so much just with prayer in general just because they're not assured of what's the nature of our relationship. And all of us, as we grow older, we're more and more aware, particularly if we're uh, in a spiritual environment, we're aware of how rotten a job we do at living up to all the things we say we believe in. It, isn't it funny? We look at children and we think, oh, they're so innocent. Do you remember how you thought when you were a little child? You thought that all the grown-ups were the good people, except the bad ones on TV, you know, the bad guys on TV, but, but your parents, you know, or your grandparents were saints, and your teacher, you know, was Mother Teresa, and you were the one that was struggling to do your homework and struggling not to fight with your brothers and sisters and maybe sometimes stealing. I remember my mom sitting on the bed. She found out that I'd stolen the money from my brother's bank, you know, and you just feel like such a rotten sinner when you're a little kid. But then you get older and you realize you've gotten worse, you know. <laughs> At least then you're an innocent sinner, so to speak, you know. You just step in and says, oh, no, but now you're jumping it. And more and more, unless this issue of the assurance of salvation is defined, you just feel dirty when you go before God. You, you feel so unworthy. How can, I, how can I talk to Him? How could I possibly make any needs known? He's probably looking at me like with a stern face, like, well, you have the face to come in here? And so this idea of the assurance of our relationship with God, to know for sure that when I go into His presence, I'm in Christ. What does that mean? He stuck me inside Jesus 
so that when I walk in, he sees Jesus. Now, how do you think the Father receives Jesus? Open arms. Open arms. His most beloved Son. And so, to think that when you walk into his presence in Christ, he says, I'm so glad to see you. Now, that really is a great conversation starter. You're already feeling good. And you'll want to come back. The second foundational point is surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into the theological debate here whether or not you can possibly be a Christian and yet not have Jesus Christ be Lord in your life. We're going to talk about it more from a practical point of view because it ends up, in a, at a practical level, working out about the same. The Lordship of Christ means that Jesus has been enthroned as the King in your life. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this wonderful hymn about uh, Jesus and saying we should have this attitude in ourselves that was in Him. And I want to just focus on the last part. And it says, verse 9 and following, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been exalted as Lord or King or Boss or Authority or Chief, whatever authoritative term you want to give it, over all. But the question is, is He your Lord? And this is something that in every point of our life is so crucial. It is so critical. In Luke 6.46, Jesus looks at the, uh, at the people he's speaking to. I think it's in the, the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount, or they call it the Sermon on the Plain. Luke 6.46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So he makes it very clear when we call him Lord, and frankly, which one of us doesn't, right? I mean, you just learned that since you were a little child. Praise the Lord. And dear Lord this and dear Lord that. And what that term, every time we say that is, every time we, we, we express that, what we're saying is, my king. And so if you are in open rebellion to your king in some area, then you, you have a problem. You're a criminal, a heavenly criminal in rebellion against the king. And Matthew 6.33, also in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the Matthew version, there's two books before Luke. Some of you, maybe many of you have this memorized. Matthew 6.33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do we seek first his kingdom? Well, the first place for him to be king, when I'm seeking first his kingdom, is in my heart, over my life. And what that means is, is I've opened my hand with everything in my life and say, Lord, I am yours. I'm not relating to you in a conditional way. I'm not saying, well, Lord, as long as you give me good health, as long as you give me long life, as long as you help me get married, as long as you help me stay married, as long as you give me money or a job or whatever, it's with no conditions attached. And I think there are challenges to that at every point in our lives. Maybe at, at some point earlier, knowing less about life at some emotional meeting, and they said, well, come forward to turn everything over to Jesus, or you were at a youth meeting and you had a stick, and they say if that stick represents your life, and if you want to dedicate to the Lord, throw it into the fire, and you did that. But as the years have gone on, you've realized how much things cost and how much things hurt. And the desire to hold on to things, to people, to situations, it just gets harder and harder as we realize how much it's really going to cost us. But someone once said, if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. I can't come to him with any conditions. The story is told of a young woman who was at a series of meetings uh, and they talked about this issue of the Lordship of Christ. You can be turning to the book of Acts while I lead up to this. <coughs> Acts chapter 10. 
But uh, she went up to talk to the minister afterwards, and she said, there's something that I just know that God doesn't want me to be doing. I'm not sure what it was, but some weekly activity that for her was fun, but God had spoken to her that it was sin and that he didn't want her doing it. And she says, but this is the funnest thing I do all week. I just love doing this, and, and I'm willing to give God everything else. I just, I just don't think I can give this to him. And he says, well, open up in your Bible to, to Acts chapter 10, where it's just a, a phrase we're going to pull out of here just because he used this as his illustration. But at one point in this story, the Lord has appeared to Peter and he said, rise and eat. And Peter, in the King James Version, said, not so, Lord. He said, I won't do it, Lord. He says, you can't say that. You can either say not so, or you can say Lord. You can't tell him no if he's the Lord. If you tell him no, he's not the Lord. And if you tell him Lord, you can't say no. And he says, I'm going to give you a pencil. And I said, I want you to pray about this. And then I want you to scratch out one of those two phrases. You either scratch out Lord and say, I'm not going to give this up. And you will not be my Lord. Admit it. Or scratch out not so and leave Lord. He walked away as the after meeting continued there. And about 10 minutes later, he came back. Tears were running down her face. And she'd scratched out, not so, and left Lord. How about you tonight? Is there something in your life where you know the Holy Spirit's already made clear to you that you don't have it with an open hand? It is uh, in a clenched fist with the best intentions. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not trying to be mean or bad or anything. You just find that that hand is closed, maybe out of fear Bad experiences in the past, we many have had been hurt so many ways. I remember one time when Wendy and I were at a meeting in Florida, and Wendy was pregnant with our first child, and there was a day where everybody could have the day off, and some went to Disney World. We'd been feeling sort of the blahs spiritually. I'm sure you never feel that, but we were kind of going through this, and and so we thought, we better just take this day just to be with the Lord, be with our Bibles, talk, pray. And at the end of that day, we took a walk on the beach and prayed. And we consciously declared our hands to be open. At that point, we were uh, on our way to France as missionaries. And so we just prayed about all these things. So we, let, we put the baby in your hands. And whether this baby's uh, going to be born okay and, and be healthy and have a long life and... We surrender to you our future in missions and going to France. I dreamt of going to France for 10 years as a missionary. And so we just, you know, looking up at the moon, it was a very wonderful moment, you know, just dedicating our lives to the Lord. Two hours later, Wendy started to bleed. We raced her to the hospital, and she was put to bed for the next month or so, and finally lost the baby. Now that was almost spooky. Well, I mean, when you've just opened your hand and says, okay, Lord, you can take it if you want. He says, okay. At the same point, we found out that the doors to France closed. And uh, they asked us to pray about going to Argentina. Well, I, I never much liked Latin America, you know. I mean, and so not only was I not going to get to go to where I wanted to go, and I love French, French and, but they asked me to go to a place where I really hadn't thought of going. It was a tremendous uh, time of, of readjustment in our lives. And I thought, how wonderful of the Lord to lead us to pray and to surrender right before the things that he had already ordained in our lives. And it was okay. Now, that didn't make it easy, but our hands had been opened. When your hand is closed and God does what he needs to do in your life, then there's this struggle and there's extra pain. If you have, say, a knife in your hand, if you have it like this, then God could take it away and nobody's going to get cut unnecessarily. I mean, you ha don't have the thing anymore, but at least you didn't uh, get all ripped up trying to hold on to something that wasn't for you for this time. And I want to encourage you, this also will greatly affect your ability to pray. To what degree Jesus Christ is Lord of all in your life. And to maybe during this week, 
you know, I'm sure if there's, if there's some big problem, it's already come to your mind as we've been talking. That's just the way the Lord seems to, to work. Nobody else has to come tell you normally. It's, it's just bing there in your mind. You think, oh no, is that it, you know? But saying, is my hand like this, Lord? Well, I, even if I don't feel it, you don't have to feel it. You just say, Lord, I open my hand and I re-surrender. Because the, the, the things you've surrendered, and then later on your hand kind of shriveled up around it. You've got to open that hand up again. Someone once said a lordship decision is one big yes and a whole lot of uh-huhs afterwards. One time where you officially raise the white flag and you surrender. I surrender. But then he comes along and he says, well, and, and the children, are they mine? Uh-huh. And, and, your, and your checkbook, is that mine? Uh-huh. And, and your spouse, mm-hmm. And your future, uh-huh. And your job, uh-huh. It's one big yes and a whole lot of small reaffirmations as you go along every day. Say, is he Lord of all in my life? If not, he's not Lord at all. This is foundational. You can't get around this. The third thing we want, those two handle our relationship specifically, the foundation of our relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, through Jesus, the Lion. And now we want to move to a third aspect that I'm just going to call freedom in Christ. If you'd like to turn to John 8, John chapter 8, 31 through 36. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. There hours and hours of workshops on the topic of freedom in Christ. I've ordered a few books on it for people that want to look into it a little bit more. But one of the things that happens when you step into the presence of God, having settled the first two foundational stones that we already talked about, assurance of salvation, and you know to the degree you can know it, that you've surrendered to Him. And yet you still may have tremendous mental battles as you start to pray. I don't mean just distraction. <coughs> but just things that are going on in, in a level of internal strife. In fact, that's uh, some re sometimes why it's, it's easier in some ways just to keep on running, keep busy, keep puttering. Because when you stop, because prayer really is stopping, it's a Sabbath moment where you're not doing anything else. You're not cooking, you're not cleaning, you're not reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you're, 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 you're stopping all of that to focus on God. And at that point, if there is a behind-the-scenes battle going on in your life and in your heart, it rushes into the foreground. As long as you're busy and noisy, you kind of keep it in the background. And you just keep running, you know, a little bit ahead of the hounds. Have you seen those people that are real nervousy? Well, sometimes it, it's because there is a hidden battle. And if they stop and are quiet too long, it catches up to them. And they can't stand it. I mean, who could? I mean, it's not just them. I mean, it would be, we'd, any of us would be the same way. So this issue of freedom in Christ comes because Jesus said, I didn't, that's not the final goal I had for you. You know, you, you've heard these things, uh, if you were ever involved in college or you've seen these, the four spiritual laws that makes a, special point of John 10.10 about I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And there are moments, because a lot of you have been in this thing for a while. I mean, you're, most of you aren't six months into the Christian faith. You've been around a while. But there were thoughts that you had about as you thought ahead in the Christian life, you, 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 particularly if you became a, a Christian as an adult, you know, a little later, maybe if you were, became a Christian at six, you just kind of, it was all so gradual, you couldn't really think these things. But if you had a, a striking conversion in your youth or, or a little later, you probably thought, man, 
everything's new. And by the time I, I get to, you know, in about 30 years, I'm going to be John Stott or Mother Teresa or something. And, and it, it's, just, it's already great, and it's just going to be more and more wonderful. After 10, 20 years have passed, you look at your life and you think, wow, I sure thought I'd be further along than this. I didn't think I'd be struggling with the things I'm struggling with. Am I just a, one of his problem children? I mean, is there, do I have a defect or something? I mean, it said, I came that you might have life and have an abundance. And well, it's going okay. But uh, I wouldn't say we're just overflowing with joy and victory. I'm just kind of stumbling my way through life and trying not to mess up too bad. And there are times when it's, it's not just the general challenge of living the Christian life, but there is one particular battle that is really almost like hell for you. It is just so present. It's like one of the giants in the land. It's just too close, nipping at your heels. And it's like it's always there. Now maybe, maybe there might be a month or two where it doesn't bother you. It may be a bad habit. It may be something related to your, to, uh, in terms of your, your sexuality. It may be something uh, in your marriage. It may be uh, what they call a, in Spanish a vicio, a vice, some kind of a, an addictive thing of, of smoking, drinking, any prescription drugs. It comes in so many different ways. But these things we know also affect believers. You can kind of get in something that you find a great deal of difficulty getting out of. You remember those Chinese handcuffs, the little tube, and you could stick your finger on each side? How easy it was to stick your fingers in, but when you try to pull them out, they wouldn't come back out, or not without some difficulty. And the harder you pull, the, the tighter it got. And that's how some of these sins are, these besetting sins. It wasn't that hard to slip into it, but you've been trying to get your, like Tar Baby, you know, trying to get back out of that thing, and trying to not draw too much attention because, you know, you'll get a bad reputation. You're struggling with that. I mean, good grief. I mean, what kind of a... You, you, you think you're really even a Christian? And so you just try to keep it in the background and try to, you know, like when your children are being bad and you don't want anybody to realize you're trying to deal with it in the most socially appropriate way, you know? Their ear maybe is pulled a little lower. Like, like in Argentina, they pull in their ears and stuff. But, but this tremendous battle going on that you realize that it's really hard to even talk to anybody about this. And this is the type of thing that I think where we, we really experience a level of spiritual warfare that, uh, that needs to be dealt with in prayer. But if this area isn't dealt with, it will greatly affect your ability to pray. So that's why this is also a foundational thing. Now we can't, these, these topics I'm covering tonight, I'm opening the subject. I, each of these would be its own workshop. But I don't want to get into the other things about, um, about uh, developing your prayer life without touching on these first because nothing I say after tonight can make up for anything that's missing tonight. And this will give you some, maybe some clues to check out as you think about, now what's, what's going on with me? Why is this so hard to pray, to draw near to God? What, why is this going on with me? It'll give you some different clues, things to maybe track down we had a girl come down to Argentina, and uh, she was, we thought she was fine, no, she was Christian and everything, and, but we had a, an Argentine pastor pray for her, and, and as time went on, we realized, uh, he talked to her just through a translator, but he began asking her questions, and uh, have you ever had thoughts of suicide, and what she had, and well, it turned out her, her grandmother had put a curse on her, and she had... Uh, uh, had a number of occultic uh, sort of experiences, and, and she was a believer, and thoughts of suicide. And we didn't know that this was an interior, secret, hidden battle in her life. Possibly, I mean, you can't prove these things. You know, we're not going to make a whole taxonomy out of the thing. But she was, in, she was suffering because of this. And, uh, but just through working through the Scripture and praying with her, Wendy had about a two-hour time praying, through some prayers and verses that uh, some of the material I've ordered, she felt like that these verses, what Jesus said here, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. She felt like she was completely set free of that condition, whatever it was. You don't have to know what a sickness is to know that you're over it. You know, maybe you don't know exactly what is the flu. We st we've had it so many times, we still don't know what it is. But you know when you've got it, and you know when you're over it. 
And there are times when there's a spiritual battle going on also where we need the Son to set us free. I talked to a, a dear friend of mine who is a PCA pastor. In, uh, I guess this was back when he was in Tennessee. And he had a, a guy coming to his church and was dating a girl in the church. And he just wanted to make sure everything was above board with this uh, couple. And so he went to visit the guy. And he began telling him, you know, because he wasn't sure if the guy was a Christian, you know, just, you know, be careful as you relate, you know, be, you know, talk issues of purity, stuff like that. Well, the guy all of a sudden just flew into a rage, an uncontrollable rage, man, stalking around. He thought the guy was going to hit him. And he'd remembered that in psychology class, he said, if somebody flips out on you, ask them a simple question, and it might flip them back. <laughs> this might come in handy someday, you never know. And so, you know, you just ask them, you know, um, uh, what's, your, what's your father's name, what city are you from, whatever. So the, thought, the question he, he came up with was, uh, what's your name? And the guy all of a sudden stopped and looked at him. His eyes rolled back and he says, So you've heard of me. My name is Legion, for we are many. This is a PCA pastor this happened to. Now, I only mention this to you. Well, let me tell you the story. So <laughs> don't leave you hanging there. <laughs> and, he, and, uh, and this pastor had had a little bit more experience with it. And so he says, Well, you're going to have to leave. And I ordered you to leave in the name of Jesus. And the guy began begging him. He says, oh, no, please, don't, don't, don't make me leave. And he says, no, you're going to gonna have to come out and leave him. And so finally he left, and, and uh, the guy kind of woke up and didn't know what had happened. Now, that's here in the United States. That's a PCA pastor. I don't want to get off on a tangent on this. All I want to say is, is that when the Bible says there's a spiritual warfare going on, it is. It's not make-believe. Now, what we see in the Bible is it doesn't talk that much about it. And my conclusion on this is, is that God's plan for us to live in total freedom is to gaze at Christ and glance at the enemy. If you ever switch that around, you're going to spiral down. Our greatest defense is Jesus Christ. And if we can fully get behind His shield, we're going to do fine. So we don't need to go living in fear unless we're not living in a right relationship to the Lion of Judah. Then you should be very afraid. But the Son can set you free, and we should never lose hope. Whatever your battle is, whatever your giant is, don't make a peace treaty with Him. Continue to declare by faith, in the name of Jesus, Maybe not today, but someday I will be free. Jesus has promised it. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Believe it. Believe it. It may be a relationship you're in with somebody other than your spouse. And you didn't mean to get into this. It just sort of has happened over a period of time. And maybe you haven't done anything other than shake hands, but in your heart you know you've stepped over a line. And you're caught. You, are, you don't have that freedom in Christ. And I urge you tonight to take to heart this message. I want to close this, this particular point with that verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, or human, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What fortresses? We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's where the fortresses are. They're up here in your head. They're areas that are strongholds that are resisting doing the will of God. And he says, this is what we're about. We should not assume that when we become a Christian, everything is fine. There is a process of sanctification where Jesus Christ and we, we've crossed the Jordan and we're going to take the land. And he didn't clean out the land yet. We're going to clean it out together like Joshua did with the people. 
And we've got to go city by city and giant by giant. And in the name of Jesus, we declare that every one of them will eventually fall. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. May it be so for each one of us here. Foundational. And finally, fourth part of our foundation is the wardrobe, the prayer closet. And this is a little this is not as heavy. We're going to end on a little lighter note here. We've been so heavy here. The importance of having a place and a time for prayer. A place and a time for prayer. Matthew 6, 6, Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus talking on praying. I am Luke 6, no wonder. Wrong book. It was a shock. I thought, oh dear. <laughs> Somebody switched my Bible around. But you, when you pray... Go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The importance of sanctifying a time and a place in your life. Not that that's the only time you're going to pray. But it's sort of like if, if a husband tells his wife, well, we don't ever need to have a any special times because we're always together. We don't need to celebrate our anniversary or, or do birthdays or anything like that because we're always together and I always love you. Is that going to strengthen that marriage or weaken it? It's going to weaken it. Just as it would also weaken it to only be together on those few special days and then never even cross paths. It's both and. And the Bible says we're to pray without ceasing. But the people who come closest to praying without ceasing are also the ones that have a particular time and place. They have some sort of definition for them that the Lord has led them to. This is my sanctified time and place. Doesn't mean I'll only pray there, but I'll, it's more to set a minimum. I'll at least pray there. Now, this is not for the purpose of legalism. It's just a decision that one makes for your good. There maybe are decisions that you've made in terms of exercise. I am trying to make that decision. I just started five days ago, you know, or six, on my daughter's bicycle machine. And yesterday I realized I was supposed to have done it yesterday, so tonight I've got to go home and do it. Now, nobody's checking up on me. You know, my wife pats me down here at times, and that's a reminder that I'm needing this. But I'm the only one that knows. And why am I doing it? Well, because it's something good. And I could do it a different way. I could go walking. And there's so, so much freedom. We can hang ourselves with our freedom. But the idea of, of sanctifying a particular time and place can be a great foundational thing for us. And frankly, the way we learn to pray is praying. No class really can teach you to pray. And Jesus gives us this principle here. When you pray, go into your inner room. It's like you... you he doesn't have to say which room. He says, you know, you're in a room. That one, yes, that one. The one with the door. Why the door? It's in secret. The importance of cultivating the invisible section of your life. A tree has a visible section above the ground, the trunk and the leaves and all of that. It's got another part that nobody sees unless the tree is uprooted and is dying. And there is an invisible part of your life. And Jesus teaches him that all the way through the Sermon on the Mount that our tendency is to show off what we should hide and hide what we should show. We got it backwards. He says your righteousness and the good things, you should fill up your secret life in that. That if somebody could come up with a videotape of all those moments when you thought nobody was watching or listening, and it has not only what you were doing but everything you were thinking, and they'd say, we've invited all of your friends. We've rented the biggest theater. This is going to be great. You're going to love this. And, and it's, it's going to be your week. And you, we, this is just a surprise thing for your birthday. You know, we've invited all your family, your friends, your coworkers. And they're going to see all of those hidden moments, all of your thoughts and everything you did. And we're just, because we just love you. And would you want to be there for that showing? Would they love you afterwards even more? Would that raise their esteem of you or lower it? 
That's too convicting. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> but particularly in this area, particularly in this area, we have something so specific, so clear, that can start to clear the air in our invisible life, in our private life, in that hidden part, in that root system, that can start to root out the rottenness that easily grows in every one of our lives. Exodus 33, we see Moses doing this, second book in the Old Testament, and they've just had the incident of the golden calf in Exodus 32. And it says in Exodus 33, verse 7, Moses used to take the tent, and this is not the tabernacle, this is just before they build the tabernacle, so this is just the tent he'd, he'd gotten, and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. He had a time and a place, or at least had a place. I'm just guessing he had a time. But he had a place. He had a tent where he could go in and nobody was watching and he would meet with the Lord. Now the Lord would give it away because it said the cloud of glory would come down on top of the tent so he couldn't hide very well. And people, it says people would come out and just look. It was the best show in town. I mean, they didn't have TV. So they said, Moses must be praying, man. This, look at this. I mean, if you could see, what if the cloud of the Shekinah glory of the Lord appeared over our sanctuary? Don't you think that would be a draw? You know? And that's why having a place that you have picked of all your places where so part of finding a place is just uh, for some with little children that's that's a huge uh, challenge when I was uh, in Costa Rica and, and Walt would wake up so early and I'd sneak out with my Bible to my place and I had my time and daddy oh we woke up an hour early you know now what do I do I can either be a good Christian and a bad dad or a good dad and a bad Christian no so so finally, I, I would sneak all the way out of the house, and there was a vacant lot next door with weeds so high that nobody could see me from the street, and I'd have my little folding chair and my thermos. <laughs> but find your place. They say that Susanna Wesley, you know, who had, what, 18 children? At two every afternoon would just take her big apron and put it over her head and pray for an hour. And the kids knew, you don't mess with mom during that hour. <laughs> but to find that place. In Exodus 34, verse 2, God tells Moses... So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Listen, my friends. I think God says the same to every one of us. He says, get ready. Get ready to meet with me. Be ready. The morning is a good time. You may not be able to do it in the morning. We're not under the law. It's, but it's great to start the day with the Lord, even if it's a brief time. Present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. I don't know where your mountain is, but you need to find it. Ask the Lord, show me. Every time we've moved, the only thing I ask, the main thing I ask of the Lord of any house we are, is Lord, give me that place. Show me where that place is. And the last couple of houses, I've always had, had that place, and I'm so grateful for it. So as we close tonight, I just want to ask you, do you have a time and a place? Start with something small. It's much better that you would have a rip-roaring five minutes with the Lord than to plan to put yourself under the burden of 30 minutes and run out of gas within a week and feel even lower than you did before you started all of this. Let's build on success. The last uh, point here is we want to move beyond duty and discipline to delight. Psalm 27.4, David says, one thing I have asked from the Lord. Now you think of asking from the Lord, you think of the magic lamp, and you only got three wishes. And Well, this is only, a, he says, I don't need three wishes. One will do. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is a very impractical request for the head of state of the government, you know. Where is the king? Oh, he's, he's, still at, he's still at church, you know. He's sitting at the feet of the Lord. Don't bother him. Well, but we've been waiting for four months, you know. Well, the Lord answered his prayer. He's, uh, he's in the presence of the Lord. He says, but that, if I had my way, that's what I would want, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Friends, that's where we're heading. Supposedly, that's what heaven is. And if we have such a hard time spending 10 minutes with God, how are we going to get used to heaven? We've got to get going now. 
and drawing near to him and realizing, hey, this wasn't so bad. In fact, I'm kind of enjoying this. And you want to get to the point where it's a delight because the more it's a delight, the more you will find yourself doing it. Not because you feel guilty, but because this is, I was made to do this. I'm home. I'm home. I'm home. Let's pray. Lord, we've talked about foundational issues. Surely everyone was touched at some point. We can always improve and grow. But Lord, we are reminded right now that there's nothing that we can do now to better our lives that would help you to love us anymore. You already love us completely. And all of our past sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ as we have surrendered our lives to you. But we want to move into a new dimension. We want to find a new world. We want to touch eternity. We ask you to flood into our lives in a new way. We just pray that this year would be the year that we remember was a tremendous change in our prayer life. And our ability to spend time with you and really, really enjoy it and see the mighty hand of God move on our behalf and for his glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.